Very good morning to you all. Welcome to our service of remembrance this morning. I'm going to start by reading you uh, one of today's readings, a very, very short reading, uh, which is Psalm 117. Seems like a good place to start our service together this morning. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So there you go, that nice short psalm, but I hope you'll agree it's a good place for us to start. Praising the Lord um, for his great love towards us. I thought we could begin our service together. Um, singing hymn from the hymn book number 107 who give thanks to him who made we don't sing it that often it's a very eloquent hymn of praise and wonder wonder at the things God has made but also the sort of pinnacle if you like of the wonder and the praise we give to God is for his love in, in the final verse so shall we sing this together so we've come to praise God this morning but we've also come to focus on God's love to us and in particular focus on Jesus, on who he is and what, it, what Jesus means to us. So it just seemed appropriate that we sing this together, focusing on Jesus. We've come to worship him too. Okay, shall we pray together? Father, we come before you. We come to, to praise you for all the wonderful things you do in our lives, the wonderful things you've made. But especially this morning, we come to think about the love that you've shown to us. As we do every Sunday morning, we come to remember this unspeakable love that you have for us. We come to focus upon Jesus, who he is to you and who he is to us. And we pray that that relationship between us and Jesus and us and you will become clearer and stronger this morning as we think about these things and draw closer to you and your lovely son. We ask for your blessing that you be here with us this morning, that you bless everything that everybody does that's part of this service and we pray that it will be pleasing in your sight. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to have the announcements um, now but while the announcements are taking place I'd like the collections to be Okay. Um, has anyone got anything else that um, they'd like us to pray for together as a church? So if you'd just like to bow your heads, we'll, we'll say a prayer together. Great Father in heaven, Lord, we're so glad to be able to come to you. To come to you to uh, ask you to bless us, to be with us, um, and particularly with those, those of our number who, who need your special care. Lord, we, we pray that you'll be close to all the people who are, who are sick and are feeling under the weather and with various different health problems. Lord, we haven't heard about that many this morning, but uh, you know who they are, and maybe lots of us actually know who they are. So Lord, our thoughts are with them. Help us to, help us to act towards them as you would have us act. Father, we ask for your blessing on John and on the, the work he's doing, but also um, we ask you to bless the, the process that the solicitors are going through so that he can come back to us. Father, we ask you to bless us as a church for all the activities we plan and all the all the endeavours just 
Lord, these things help us to, to grow and help us to come close to you. And we ask that you bless us in all these activities. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to have our readings now. We've just got one reading today. It's actually from the readings that are part of next week um, that Simon asked us to read. And it's Luke chapter 9, the first 27 verses Trevor's going to read for us. Luke chapter 9. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed, because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We've only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. John Down is going to come and read the next part of that reading. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions, so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely le ever leaves him, and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marvelling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what he meant. It was hidden from them, 
so they did not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you, John. We're going to sing our next hymn now, talking to us a little bit about who, who Jesus is. So I thought we should sing this together. It's actually from Praise the Lord, number 143, Behold the Man. Simon. Good morning, everyone. It's quite a song, isn't it? Um... And wow, Luke chapter 9, that's a really big chapter. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff happens in that. Um, but this morning, I just want to focus, actually, on one very, very small part of it. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ asked his disciples one very, very simple question. And 2,000 years later, the answer to this question is still hotly disputed within Christendom today. And rather than being a simple question requiring a simple response, this, I think, is very much the question, the big question that defines Christianity as a whole 
and also unfortunately separates different fractions of it. And what I also think is that this question, uh, for a Christian, our response to it may actually determine our response to the teachings of the entire scriptures. So let's have a look. Luke chapter 9, going in at verse 18. So once Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. And here it is, here's the question. Who do you say I am? And as we read on, we see that Peter jumps in as he always so wonderfully does. And he jumps in and he says, you are the Christ, or in some translations, you are the Messiah of God. And, and that in itself is somewhat of a, of a revelation. Because if we take the book of Luke as a text in its own right, that's the first occasion when the, the title Christ or Messiah is actually attributed to Jesus. So as a text in its own right, this denotes at least some part of realisation on the part of the disciples. But I wonder if, instead of rushing in, like Peter does here, if this morning we actually take a moment to consider that question. Who do you say I am? Now, when I first thought about this, one of the key things that stood out for me was the last two words of it. Who do you say I am? And I'm sure you'll recognise these words as being absolutely key in the Old Testament because God identifies his omnipotence and power and glory with that brilliant phrase, I am that I am. And he says to Moses in Exodus 3, you go and tell the children of Israel that I am has sent me to you. And those words I am are also used by Jesus, interestingly enough. A few months later, in answer to, to Pilate's question, are you the son of God? He answers, I am. And he also uses it in a very, very interesting occasion just come with me quickly to, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not fifty year, yet fifty years old, the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, I think that particular quote from Jesus can sometimes see a little, seem a little bit confusing, especially when stated within such a literal sense. I mean, one of the things that you always, I used to think about when I was younger of that is, that sounds grammatically incorrect, because surely it's, before Jesus was born, I was, or I was something else. But of course it wasn't grammatically incorrect, and neither incidentally was it Jesus using black country dialect. These words are quite deliberate from Jesus, because the words, I am, are timeless their past, present and future, all articulated within one omnipotent identity. And I think it's true to say that at this point in the scriptures, this is an, a, a timeless identity that Jesus has also associates himself with. So what I'd like to suggest this morning is that the question, who do you say I am, is also one that's timeless. It's one that's as important to today's disciples as it was to the original twelve. And it's one that searches for an answer that isn't limited to viewing Jesus within a historical context alone. And I think if we try and perhaps answer that question straight away, it can actually suddenly seem a little bit difficult. Because I think it's quite difficult for us to provide one concise definition of who Jesus was. 
or who Jesus is indeed. And even if we use some of the titles that are used in the scriptures or that Jesus uses himself, even if we say, call him the Son of Man or the Son of God or Christ or Messiah or Mediator, for me, it certainly doesn't seem that any one of those individual titles fully encapsulates who Jesus is in in his entirety. And it strikes me that in asking us this question, Jesus actually wants us to consider who he is to you rather than trying to, trying to give a correct answer to this question. You'll notice he doesn't ask, what am I? He doesn't even ask, who do you think I say I am? He's already asked them who the crowd say he is. What he says is, who do you say I am? And I think because of that, this, this question doesn't require an answer in received biblical or received theological terms. It requires a response that's personal to you, that actually questions your relationship with Jesus. And I think in that sense, Jesus then becomes no different to someone else we have a relationship with. If someone, for instance, asked me, who's that guy over there? The chances are I'll, I'll answer by saying, oh, he's he's someone I go to church with or he's someone I work with, he's someone I went to uni with, something like that. The chances are my response will actually be a talk about what their relationship is to me. And therefore, if Jesus is someone with whom we have a relationship, and I would strongly suggest this morning that he is, then when we consider our response to this question, it's logical that we'll actually give a response that's personal to us. We might say, he is my Lord, he is my confidant, he is my saviour, he's someone I would like to be more like he's how I understand God something like that or all of the above you know and then in this, in this sense then Jesus is just like any other human being, he can't be tied down he can't be pigeonholed into one abstract definition, there are different sides to him that have different impacts on all of our, on, on our lives but having said that, if we take the Peter approach and try and jump in with two feet with the first answer Not necessarily the first answer that comes into our mind, but the primary role that Jesus has in our relationship with him. Then I think perhaps we can actually realise from that something about ourselves as well. I think what this question shows is that as a Christian, our understanding of who Jesus is and who we are is actually inseparable. And that's something that I'm only just starting to sort of realise myself, if I'm dead honest. And I think it's a very clever technique here used by Jesus to ask us questions rather than telling us forgettable facts or bombarding us with a rule book. Because by actually thinking about this, I think it actually our, our sort of self-realisation kind of kicks in here. And this is quite a common technique used in today's society. You know, any, any good psychotherapist, counsellor, business coach, whatever, will tell you that one of the best ways of getting people to understand about themselves and what they're doing is to actually ask them questions. Why did you say that? Why do you think you did that? Rather than telling them why you think they did that. Because, of course, then the recipient actually has to evaluate for themselves why they do things, and the message sinks in far more deeper. And it strikes me that Jesus, rather than giving answers and making rules, calls us to knowledge through experience. Throughout throughout his teachings, he asks questions, he tells us stories, he challenges us. And in so doing, he calls us to a personal discovery of truth and a personal recognition of what is reality. 
And I think this principle of asking questions of ourselves is one that's generally very, very sound. Um, there's, a, there's a writer called uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's a, a writer of the 18th century Enlightenment. He's in fact a, a contemporary of Voltaire, who I think was quoted in this month's newsletter. And Rousseau says this, he says, in one of his philosophical works, he says, when we stop asking questions, we die. We only stop asking questions when we have despaired of life or when delusion or pride have mastered us. Now, that sounds a little bit doom and gloom, a little bit French perhaps, but, um, sorry. But I think there's a little bit of, of truth in what he says, because if we think of our spiritual lives, and particularly our spiritual journey that we go on, I wonder if it's a little bit detrimental of, uh, of us to sometimes spiritually suggest that we've got all the answers, or indeed most of them. It seems it, instead, it seems a lot more reasonable if, we, if we'd actually defined ourselves as people who ask a lot of the right questions rather than people who have all the right answers, because that, for me, holds a lot more weight, a lot more kind of spiritual um, kind of forward thinking. I think answers, as history has shown us, can sometimes be very dangerous things, answers to questions. Especially when people egotistically fight to defend those answers against a, great, a broader version of what is truth. And I wonder if this is something that we also need to consider with our spiritual interpretation of the scriptures. Because I think we could all be susceptible to both ideologically and theologically clinging to familiar answers until for us they become the only possible answers. And I think it's true to say that we've probably witnessed, even within our own fraternal community, the speed at which people may tenaciously defend those answers. And these might be answers that they've had for many, many years or maybe simply handed, hand, hand, handed down to them from the generation above. And they might defend these by attacking the views and opinions and interpretations of others. And I think we can all be susceptible to this to some extent. I remember a speaker at Greenbelt a few years ago. One of the first things he said when he stood up was, I think the most intolerant Christians are liberal Christians, he said, because they refuse to tolerate anyone who isn't as liberal as themselves, which I thought was, was quite, quite a good thing. I, and and I, I just throw that in there just to sort of demonstrate how, we, how none of us are perhaps exempt from this. Rousseau goes on to say that wisdom and tolerance are found by listening to the important questions, keeping them open and pausing in silence to listen again and again. What I might suggest then is that in our response to Jesus' question, who do you say I am? The answer is to listen. Listen to the question and listen to the answer that actually lies deep within our heart. Jesus doesn't stand as a figure for us to define, to judge, to look at within a historical context. He's there to be known. He's there to be known in our relationship with him, within us, the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And it also strikes me that asking us the question, who do you say I am? Jesus is asking us an intimately personal question. And it's a question that requires a really honest and frank answer. And I think if, if we don't see the intimacy, and the intimacy of the question as being a little bit disturbing, then perhaps you haven't stopped to listen to it. 
Who do you say I am? Jesus is asking you that question. But again, Jesus isn't quizzing us. He's not demanding a specific correct answer from us in any kind of forceful manner. Because to show this much intimacy, to ask someone what they really and truly and brutally honestly think of you, is simply a declaration of love. Now, those particularly observant of you, or analytical in your thinking, may have spotted a little bit of a paradox in what I'm saying today, or at least a a sort of inconsistency with perhaps other parts of the scriptures. And it surrounds the issue of wisdom, because, of course, throughout the scriptures, the quest for wisdom is something that's constantly advocated, and it's often talked about as something that brings us close to God. And we've got characters such as Solomon through to the writings of Paul, where this is a constant theme that goes to the scriptures. And yet Jesus, in contrast, seldom condemns anybody for their lack of knowledge or lack of understanding. In fact, he's famously known to say in Luke 18, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And that phrase in itself that Jesus uses there might seem a little bit paradoxical when taken against the other parts of the scriptures. But I wonder if within the context this morning, Jesus' words here make a little bit more sense. Because if it's through the questions that we ask that our wisdom is exemplified, then it's precisely this childlike, innocent inquisitiveness that can actually bring us closer to God. Jesus, by asking us the question, who do you say I am? He's asking us to open up our minds and open up our hearts to him. And that, I think, for me, is what a relationship with Jesus is really all about and what a union with him is. Behind that question of Jesus is the longing to be loved by people he loves. Now, talking of opening up and listening, and just just to warn you now, this is quite a tenuous link. Um, I'm going to go with it anyway. Um, I recently bought um, a satellite navigation system. Well, I'll say recently, a, a year or two ago, or a sat-nav for short. Now, does everyone know what these things are, a sat-nav? Everyone's nodding. Right, I won't explain them. And for me, it makes my life a hell, a hell of a lot easier. You know, I can, rather than driving with an ATZ over the wheel and trying to change gear and all that kind of thing, you know, I can just plug it in and be told where to go. I'm not selling them, by the way. I just, I just thought I'd throw it in there. Um, now, because I'm a little bit daft at times, and those who know me well know that I can be quite stupid at times, um, I thought it'd be quite funny to program it to go in the wrong direction. Um, I don't know why, it wasn't particularly funny, but um, I, was, I was in Birmingham at the time, and I was going towards Manchester, and I was heading back towards Manchester, that's right. And I knew the way, so that was fine. Um, and so what I did was I programmed it for somewhere in the middle of London, just for a laugh. Um, so, so off I go up the M6, and I'm driving along, and um, my sat-nav, um, it's, it's a lady called Jane who, who tells me where to go, and she, she's often quite assertive at times. So I'm driving along, and every junction I go past, um, of course, she keeps telling me to get off at the next exit, and, and, she, and I can look on, look on the little, little map, and what she's telling me to do is turn around at the roundabout and get back on, go in the way, and that kind of thing. And, but I, I ignore her, and I keep on going. So I keep, this keeps happening, junction after junction after junction. And I, and I think after a while, this is, quite, this is getting quite silly now. At some point, Jane, um, who can be frosty at the best of times, um, at some point, Jane's going to say to me, now, come on, Simon, you're not even trying now. You're not, you're not even making an effort to do what I tell you, so that's it, I'm giving up. I'm, I'm turning myself off, you know. Um, but of course, because she's a, a machine, she never does. 
And when I got to about, about north of Stoke, um, I had a, a little epiphany. A bit of a strange place to have an epiphany, Stoke, but nevertheless, I had a little epiphany. And I thought, you know what? God's a bit like that, isn't he? Because as long as you program into God the, and essentially you know, make a declaration to him of where you want to go, then you can be heading off in completely the wrong direction, as I probably most of the time am. Or you can take the wrong turn at any given point in your life. And God never says, that's it, <laughs> you've had your chances now, that's three wrong turns in a row, you're out of there. No, he constantly re- redirects you back to him. He constantly recalculates and reevaluates the route to come back to him. And yes, that can be a different route depending on where you are, but he never gives up. He keeps, he keeps that kind of that recalculation going, so there's always a way, always a way to get back to him. John said, the words of Jesus, they are spirit and they are life. And I think they quite literally are. So our, destiny, our destination, if you like, is the kingdom of God. Now come with me to Luke 17. <clears throat> Luke 17, um, coming in at verse 20. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And again, this is another, another quote, if you like, that might seem a little bit confusing when stated within such a literal sense. But I think if we come at it from the angle of gaining self-knowledge through an inquisitive relationship with Jesus, that we might actually understand this, because if we accept that the kingdom of God is not something that we acquire by adhering to a certain set of rules, surely it's logical that the kingdom of God that is within us is something that goes hand in hand with our relationship with Jesus. And I don't think it's a coincidence at all that within Jesus' stories, the analogies that he uses to represent the kingdom are heavily based around a disciple's relationship with God. So it can grow, for instance, in the amazing way that a mustard seed does. Or it can give you an experience of mercy and having your debts forgiven that makes you stop short at the boundless love that's there. And I think it's always wise for us to remember the parable in Matthew 22 where that king, the king reaches out to the marginalised and despised within society and invites them to his banquet. Jesus reminds us that the banquet of life that is the kingdom is something to which we're all welcome and he encourages his churches to reach out to those marginalised and despised in society and invite them to the kingdom as well. And as we just read um, towards the end of that chapter in Luke, Jesus prevented his disciples one time from stopping a man who was not one of us from using the name of Jesus to drive out devils. And Jesus, who was in this sense a true liberal, said... He who was not against him was for him. And I think that demonstrates to me that any kind of exclusive policy within Christendom can never justify itself in Jesus' name. Whenever Christians arrogantly draw a sharp line between Jesus and other people, it soon becomes clear that it's in fact they that are on the opposing side of the line to Jesus. So, 
if we as disciples have the kingdom of God within us we might find that naturally our consciences will ask us some very difficult and very challenging questions mine, mine certainly does and I'm, I'm happy to share one or two with you today if you, for instance when I was brought up um, I, I was always brought up as quite a, in a traditional Christophian background and a lot of the, sort of the, the services I went to kind of surrounded um, Old Testament prophecies and you know I had it kind of drilled into me the, uh, the sort of Zionist um, message of the Jewish right to the land of Israel um, but then having, having said that when I look at the news at the moment and the last few months and the la- in the last few years personally I, I cannot believe that the amount of artillery fire that's currently being used against Palestinians or the amount of oppression that the state of Israel is imposing on Palestinian counterparts is something that can be condoned under any of the principles of New Testament Christian thought and I understand completely the prophecies and I understand also that there are atrocities that happen on both sides of the fence here but I don't I I can't personally see how we can ignore the Christian principles of loving a neighbour as yourself of turning away from violence of glory being given to the passive lamb rather than the aggressive lion so if I were to then take the totality of the scriptures and put it on my heart I genuinely don't know what stance I I, I should take on this issue or indeed the next question is do I even need to take any kind of theological stance whatsoever I mean I don't know Um, but then you know if we if we take that 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 sort of attitude and trust that God's in control and do nothing with everything else you know we probably wouldn't do a lot you know so you know we do have some some quite challenging things that happen to us now you know you may have all have opinions on this and, and that's great but for me, that, that's a question that genuinely sort of plays in my conscience a little bit. Um, and we might also have more personal um, issues to ask ourselves. I, I noticed in, in, in this month's newsletter um, there was something about the, 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 the recent statement about taking the emblems. And whilst I think it would be quite inappropriate of me to stand here today and tell you my stance on it, what I will say is I applaud the fact that um, you know, a discussion's been had um, thoughts have been expressed um, possibly even a debate might have happened I don't, even, I don't know um, but that a live decision has been made on current thoughts current beliefs and we're actually asking those questions of ourselves I think the process of asking those questions is, is very very strong now you know, for a lot of these issues and a lot of the things this morning I'm sure you're aware I've only asked questions it's with absolutely no shame that I admit that I, I really feel that I don't have many surefire answers to anything and I certainly don't have many answers that will stand up to any kind of challenge you can possibly put on them although I may have formed a few opinions and interpretations along the way which may indeed be subject to change you know, I'll let you know um, but what the point I'm trying to make this morning is that I genuinely believe that the process of asking questions of ourselves any questions is something very very healthy and not so much for debate or controversy or anything silly like that Um, but because these questions mirror the process of gaining knowledge through experience and gaining knowledge through a process of thoughtful understanding I think whilst as Christians it's very important to us that our 
belief and our faith in God and in Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely concrete. It's through asking these questions that we can actually help our faith to grow, our understanding of God and Jesus to grow, and our relationship with him to grow along with it. So as we come to take the bread and wine now today, I wonder if you wish, it might be an idea to ask yourself some questions. And if you wish, to, take to, to begin by asking yourself that first, that essential question of Christianity. Who do you say that Jesus is? So we're going to eat some bread and take some wine and maybe we're going to ask ourselves some questions as Simon's encouraged us to do. Just because Jesus asked us to do it, he asked us to, to do this, to eat this bread and drink this wine and remember him. So um, just before we do that, we'll sing this together. Father God, Lord, we come before you now and we come in the same way we come so many times. And Father, every time we come to you and we're confronted by your love, we see the enormous depths of your love. We find the questions again. What does your love mean to us? Lord, as we take this bread, we pray that you will listen to all the answers of all our hearts as we respond to that question of what this love means to us, who you are to us. Lord Jesus, who are you to us? And as we answer these questions in our own individual ways, may we be drawn closer to you in the deeper faith, in greater love, in more unswerving determination to follow you, to follow you to, that, to our destination when your kingdom comes. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, it is so good to be here again, to be refreshed and supported and forgiven by your dear Son, our Redeemer. It is so important and necessary for us to be gathered together whenever possible on the first day of the week to take stock of ourselves. And if I may pray now, please, on behalf and on for my brothers and sisters here, that we should take more notice of your son's teaching and imploration. That we should definitely not worry about today or tomorrow or next week, but that we should look beyond to the time when he will be king. Your son's return should be all important to us. Dear Father, from the bottom of our hearts do we thank you for this wine. Let each one here be convinced that it means everything to us. We are sorry. Our life standard doesn't compare in the slightest with that of your sons. Forgive us, please, again, and hear us, please, through Jesus. Amen. Our last hymn is certainly written by an inquisitive Christian who wonders and ponders all the right questions about who Jesus is and about God's love and about what that means uh, to us. So shall we sing it together?
together. Father God, we do wonder at you, at the things you've made. Not just how big they are, but how warm and intimate they are too. And we can't possibly know the answers, Lord, when we look at you and we see how high the stars are. We, we can't really, our eyes are not good enough to really understand that. And our minds are not big enough to hold you, Lord. We thank you that you have sown that seed in us. You've touched our hearts to make us ask the questions. We thank you, Jesus, for the questions you've asked us. We thank you that, that you are the kingdom of heaven within us. It causes us to grow closer to you. So, Lord, we thank you for the time we've been able to share this morning, the time to sit and think and try to answer the questions, try to see in our hearts how close we are to you. And I pray, Lord, that the result of that this morning will be that we're all one small step closer to you. And we ask that your kingdom will come soon, that longing in our hearts will be satisfied as you've promised and we also ask Lord that you stay with us in our hearts and we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Amen